What is your legacy? If you ask most people, they would tell you it's a last name, genetic information, or a line of ancestors. But legacy is so much more. It isn't just who you are. It's your story, your relationship to other people, and your perspective. This is the Spinster Life Podcast, the podcast that's descended from a matrilineal bloodline. To usher Black History Month out and to ring in Women's History Month, my guest Patricia Smith-Griffin is here to tell us the story of her family and how the women in her family have preserved their history since 1802. Patricia has weaved the story of generations of ancestors together with American history to tell the story of overlooked perspectives and of fiercely resilient women whose voices have been silenced for far too long. Patricia is a journalist, a genealogist, the voice of The Legacy of Charity's Children, a podcast about the story of Patricia's family, and the founder of Charity's Children Project, a nonprofit organization committed to establishing and preserving the historic contributions of her family to the city of Dayton, Ohio. In the podcast, Patricia chronicles the life of early Ohio settler Charity Davis Caesar Brody and generations of her descendants. Patricia has a lot to teach us about how to maintain a family's legacy through records, archives, and oral history. And she shares stories from her family and history about the single women who made a lasting impression. Patricia, thank you so much for being here. I am so thrilled to be having this conversation. The question that single women get asked so often is... How are you going to continue your family name? How are you going to preserve your legacy if you don't have any children? So thrilled to have you here to tell us how we can think beyond that. Think beyond that and live beyond that and purposefully act beyond that. As um, in our family tree and the Charities Children Project that I am working on, part of what we're doing is the telling the family story. We have passed the story down since 1802. Early settlers in Ohio, John Davis brought his infant daughter to Ohio from Kentucky in 1802. And our family has been there in Dayton, Ohio for now some 12 generations. The uniqueness of our family story is that quite often genealogy is a patriarchal-led research. Women take their husband's last names. Women take their husband's last names, and they often get lost in history in some families. But what has been unique in our family is that all of these generations, these women have always used their maiden names. They've always used their maiden names within their name. There was one family member who's in my direct line that I had a hard time tracking because she had so many names. She was Mary Louisa was her first name. So she was Mary Louisa Chittenden Galloway. Her husband died when they were very young. Taylor. And so sometimes she was Mary Taylor. And sometimes that was probably just the only generation that I had that challenge with, but because the generation before her and the generation after her used those maiden names, it tied it all together. That is what has been the uniqueness in our story. The podcast is called The Legacy of Charity's Children. 19-year-old Nathaniel Nat McCleary led the mob attack on the innocent. With an invasive sense of entitlement, they brought dogs, whips, and clubs to the door of Alexander Price. Forcing their way into his home, McCleary and three others demanded services from the yellow woman. 
This is the backdrop, the backstory, the before, during, and after the attack on Africatown, the extenuating circumstances of haunted blackness in Ohio's free Northwest Territory that was never free. Charity, the Davises and Broadies on the front lines next time on the Legacy of Charity's Children. Charity is our ancestor who John Davis brought to Ohio in 1802. So we call ourselves Charity's children, we who are her descendants. So I tell the stories of what just coincidentally happens to be of women and their life from early pioneer days in Ohio, and we are taking it season by season. It is going to be quite epic in that at the close of season one, we are only up to like 1842. We still got a ways to go in telling the story of these women's lives. I thought a lot about this topic in doing this show on a number of different levels. First of all, I do not like your name. I don't like Spinster. I don't think that <laughs> I think <laughs> I think that we as women have various chapters in our lives. And um in researching our family history and not just our family, but the lives of the women whose lives touched ours. There were many women who were not married. And when I say that we have many chapters is that what happens in this chapter may be dramatically different than what happens in the next. So I don't think that we should assign ourselves or categorize ourselves, but to be open to life and love and to where it it leads us. When I think about the women that have influenced our family tree, the women who have been within our family tree who were not married or who married late in life and didn't have children. I, one of my dearest relatives is my dear Aunt Eunice. She was my great aunt. She was my grandmother's sister. And I absolutely adored Aunt Eunice and her husband, Uncle Herschel. Aunt Eunice married late in life and she and Uncle Herschel were probably married maybe 25 years before he passed. And in doing the research on our family history, I I see the life that she lived prior to marrying Uncle Herschel and how rich and full it was. And then in the season of her marriage, which was when I was a young girl and growing up and knew Aunt Eunice and Uncle Herschel and their activities at the Alder Street Community Chapel. I knew her as Uncle Herschel's wife and dedicated wife and united front. And then when Uncle Herschel passed, I found that many of the things that I thought were her way of living were in fact things that she had adapted for her husband. And very quickly, even (laughs) in her silver years, began a new chapter. She had no children. The number of children and the generations of children that her ministry influenced, that her character influenced, it still amazes me when I think about, and and, and look, that I can go on and on in talking about uh, specific women within our family tree. So I've got to tell you about Aunt Rita. Aunt Rita was an elder in the Methodist church. 
And let's just be sure that maybe then is as in now and now is as in then. It was not an easy position for a woman to take. He was married for a very short period of time and she never had children. Her husband was a sailor. I think he was in the First World War and I think she lost him during that time. Never married, became an elder in a Methodist church. And her assignment within the Methodist Church was to go to various startup churches in Ohio and get them off the ground and, you know, good on their feet. And and then she would come back home and, and minister at First Wesleyan Church there. So she had this very rich life within a predominantly male community, even in going to the seminary, and which at that time was segregated as well as very few women. When I uh, look at the class picture, well, of course, she is the only brown face. And I don't think I recall another female face. So coming through that type of environment, you and then being assigned to go to these little villages and hamlets in Ohio to start these churches where people are naturally going to challenge your authority because of who you are. You're an outsider coming into this really small community that's really banded together. And and a woman. And a woman. And and a woman like that. Right. And a woman of color. And I'm going to guess that there's this is they're predominantly white spaces and they hadn't had many interactions with any people of color. Yes. And here she is coming in this authoritative position. So quite a legacy she left, married for a short period of time, never remarried, never had any children. But our dear Aunt Rita fostered over 100 children in Montgomery County, Ohio. Her legacy is dear to our family, but I shudder to think in the work that I'm doing now and as we are telling our family story throughout Ohio and hopefully throughout the country, I shudder to think how many people are going to come to us and tell us stories of how she influenced their lives. One might call her a spinster. <laughs> yeah, you might, but you also might call her a community leader. You might, That's exactly who she you, was. You might call her yeah. a maternal figure. You might call her a sculptor of young lives. I find it funny that you don't like the term spinster. I, I think a lot of people have that reaction. And part of it is like, I want to dust it off and- okay. And, and reassign its value as intentional singlehood, as really claiming that time for yourself and doing things for yourself and establishing who you are as a person before, before you are, your identity is part of a couple. Before your next chapter. The, the other irony of me doing this is that I am in my 40th year of marriage. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) My husband and I met at Ohio University, and we recently renewed our vows there at Galbraith Chapel. It was enchanting and all that fairy tale stuff. But my life has been surrounded by friends who never married. And my very best friend, um, Peggy, was, I called her my everyday girl. You know, the person that you talk to all day, every day. Yeah. Yeah. So Peggy was my everyday girl. So when I began having children, these weren't just my children. These were Peggy's children also. I lost her in 2002, quite suddenly, having our one of our all-day conversations. I spoke to her at 
uh, 11 a.m. at 6 p.m. She was gone. Oh, that's heartbreaking. I'm so it, sorry. It was, it was absolutely heartbreaking for not just me, but for my children. My children were young at the time and she was their Aunt Peg. So as I was having a recent move, my youngest daughter was helping me pack up some things. And so she found a letter that Aunt Peg had written to my oldest daughter when she turned 13. And the letter talked about how wonderful her future was going to be. And that uh, I know, you know, your mom doesn't know anything right now, but in a couple of years she might. And it was just a beautiful, uh, heartwarming letter. And so we found a letter and I had a picture of Jacqueline and uh, Peg together. And so uh, my youngest daughter got it framed in a shadow box and gave it to her for a significant birthday. So it was a life not finished, but yet look at the influence. I have been married these 40 years. My daughters did not marry as young as I did. And as I watched their life mirror the life of my best friend, as I watched them do bold and inventive things that really I didn't do as well within the marriage as I could have, as, as they witnessed my friend do. And I see her influence on their lives and their career choices. So that's another reason why, as I began to think about that word, but you are right, because what we have to do with words is that we have to seize them, we have to own them, and we have to retain the power. When I was raising my children, I often used historical derogatory words and phrases because of the historical connotations, because I wanted to, to do what you're doing with the Spencer, Spencer word. I wanted to devalue it. I don't want, if someone calls you that, or if someone covertly says that, and you may not be sure of what they're talking about, I don't want you to be shocked or react in any way, shape, or form. You've heard this before, and you know this is ignorance. So I, I understand in your explanation, because I've done the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like words do have power, but you can also take yeah. away the power of the words. Yeah. Own them, seize them. Yeah. You play with words in so many different ways that are so beautiful. All the stories that you're telling and the storytelling tradition in your family. Why don't you tell us just a little bit about how, obviously you've been hearing these stories since you were very, very small. But how did you decide to turn all of those stories into a career, into project? I was recently asked, when did I learn about Charity Brody? And my answer to that was, when did I learn my name? I have <laughs> never not known this family story. I have always known it. And I guess in many ways, I will invite your listeners to listen to The Legacy of Charity's Children. Episode one will give you some more background information about the path that kind of led me here. But I think it's something that I always knew that I was going to do. I did not know that I would be compelled and driven in this way, but it is something that I think I've always known that I had to do. I was, before delving into this, I was deciding between this project and another. The, the other project that I thought was interesting, trendy, and I guarantee you, Amy, you'd be talking to me about that one right now too. 
But the fact of the matter is that I could not do both because of what I knew this project needed. We have a trove of family archives, letters, pictures from dignitaries, Booker T. Washington, Mary Church Terrell, just to name a few, W.E.B. Du Bois. We have a trove of these types of family documents that I knew needed to be cataloged and transcribed and find a way of permanence to share them with the world so that they can become what they are, part of African-American history and perspectives. I could not do both of those projects. So I was trying trying to decide, you know, well, maybe I should do this one first and then and then get to what I know I eventually have to do. And I was working at a news outlet and I was talking to my news director and actually pitching him probably the other project. And he said to me, yeah, you know, this is really good, but your family history is something you should really, you know, you should explore. I spoke to my spiritual advisor about it. And she asked me, is there anyone else in your family that can do this? And I paused. I thought about it. I said, not like I can do it. Because of my broadcast experience, because of my journalism experience, I knew that what would be required is what and, and is and is what I have done is to weave our family story with what it is, the American story, with American history. So the letters and journals that I have that talk about the world, the Chicago World's Fair, the letters and journals that I have from from my great-grandmother who served with her husband during the First World War, weaving our family story within the American story, I think tells it in a way that confirms and legitimizes this oral history that we've heard for so many years. It confirms and legitimizes this written history. Uh, a wonderful thing that we have done in our family, and I encourage other families to do it as well, is it appears from what I have found is that each generation writes it down. Each generation that has been able to write, writes it down. And that continues the story. And as you've got me thinking that maybe that's the the, the part too, is that it has been women. I think that women in general are usually in charge of keeping the story or keeping the family heirlooms or, you know, they're in charge of caring for not only the people, but some of the the objects and and the things. things. (laughs) Yes. Yes. But in your family, these women also took charge of the narrative itself. They controlled the stories that were being told. And Amy, they exactly did that. Something that I say in the very first episode of the podcast was that Our family has been very selective in sharing this story and even more selective in sharing archives that we've rescued for generation. In the production of that first episode, as I began to recite the family story that we recite like the Lord's Prayer, I I paused and the audio engineer chose not to take that deep breath out that I took before telling the story. Because even these many generations, I still paused. I still paused. Am I doing the right thing? But in episode one of The Legacy of Charity's Children, you'll understand that the value is in our story. The inspiration is in our story. 
I continue to be inspired by these women's lives, mostly because, like I said, I have woven this history, American history, with the perspectives of our family history. And so understanding from quite often firsthand written accounts, letters and journals that we they've kept, letters that they've written to each other, understanding the perspectives that from understanding the history from their perspective makes me even more inspired to tell this story because it inspires me. I mean, isn't that the part of the history that's missing? You know, we can all recite facts that we've been taught in school. We can tell you when things occurred and where they occurred and and maybe a really general, like why they happened. But the history is in how people felt, how that history affected them how it actually affected their lives. The dates, they're kind of boring and dry, but it's those emotions, those real life repercussions on their lives. Those are the really interesting things. When they tell the story of COVID, will they tell the story of the date that Fauci came and and told us that we were experiencing this serious worldwide pandemic, of course? Will they tell the number as close as they can controversially get it, of how many lives were lost? Sure. But who tells the story of those people standing outside of those hospitals and singing to their loved ones all night long in those parking lots? That is a perspective of COVID that I hope we never forget. And that That brings up for me too, that now we've gone through something that was really historical that will be in the history books. And yeah. we all can remember all those emotions surrounding it and, and how that made it feel significant, not the date, not the numbers, but no. oh. the feelings, the terror and terror. Yeah. 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 The, the, and, and it's interesting because even before the, uh, the tragedy of COVID struck our family, I remember watching a television show that, was probably one of the first shows that examined that what COVID was like. And it was the first season after COVID had, had hit. I didn't even know that that would be a trigger for me. I couldn't even watch this, the show. <laughs> Just at the point of seeing them put on the mask, you go to the grocery stores and you're in the single file and all that. I'm like, Whoa, mm-hmm. I'm yeah. going to find something. Yeah. <laughs> I, do you feel a lot closer to your ancestors, especially, you know, the, the ones who died so long ago in the 1800s, does it make you feel closer to them with this perspective and having these materials like their journals or diaries or, or letters? It, it absolutely does. And it is not something that I have even written about yet. One of the things that is a family treasure is Charity Brawny, who's right over my shoulder there, is our ancestor from 1802 who father brought her to Ohio in 1802. Um, Charity became a washerwoman. She was a child bride. And when her husband died, she was still young. She became a washerwoman. And during that time, she and a group of women called the United Daughters of Zion, after a mob attack in Dayton, Ohio, on Dayton's Black community, they banded together to buy some land and build a church. They pledged 50 75 cents a week, took in laundry to build that church and pay the mortgage. Among our family's treasures are Charity's irons. 
the cast iron tools of her trade. We do have other, you know, letters, journals, but I bring that up because of all the things that we have, that's the only thing that I can really, you know, hold. It's cast iron, so I don't think I can hurt it. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't think you can either. But there are times when, yes, I will hold those cast irons and it it does make me feel close and closer to them. There is a an episode of the podcast, Fire Watchers. I'll never forget writing Fire Watchers because I wrote it as soon as I had done that research. While the research was fresh and I had to lay down when I finished the episode. And I think that that was the first time I understood that this is different than what you have done in the past. Julia Galloway Higgins, the young lady over my shoulder, she recently received a historic marker in Dayton, Ohio for her work as a suffragist. And part of the process of receiving the marker, we had to present primary sourcing. And in going through her primary sourcing, the foundation was, well, they weren't pushy, but they, everybody has a deadline. They need to get the job done. And I understand that. And so I was working as fast as I could going through minutes from that went back as far as 1898 through 1942. Okay. So it was kind of painstaking, but the, the lady that was helping us, she said, you know, I think I get it. She said, I have never archived anything from my family. So this is not the same type of process. And I have had to come to grips with that myself. My last job was in journalism and radio news. Some, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And my, my producer recently, we were doing a read before taping. And she said to me, she said, do you think I don't know what you're doing? And I was, what? What do you mean? And uh, she said, this is not a newscast. And you're going to have to feel this. So it has changed our schedule because of the type of podcast, the storytelling that we want to do, the original music uh, from our music director and audio engineer, Jared Griffin, the sound effects and, and what we build within a podcast. We have definitely slowed our process down because the stories are important and there are no shortcuts. There are no shortcuts. I work with uh, Ohio historian Sherry Gowdy, who uh, proofs that she brings the research. Sherry and I generally analyze this research together. I will, um, my writing regimen might be a little grueling and I'm going to, I might tweak it a little bit, but I'm up at 5 a.m., 4.30, and I'm sitting at my desk by 5 a.m. to write. And Sherry says something about the research is that you can't rush it. You can't rush the research. And so it's a, it's a painstaking process. And so while season one is, we'll be wrapping up, I think it's around the 25th of March, maybe after season two is written and ready to go. But we have been thinking about augmenting season one, basically because of some of the questions that you've been asking today, Amy, so that we can go back through episode by episode and explain to people how we researched. So you can begin to understand it is not just a tagline. There is value in every family story. Um, 
And and we want to go through it and teach you how to find that kind of information. Something that you asked a little while ago was how women who are not married or who haven't been married and, and how do you track them down within your family tree? Of course, census reports are a wonderful tool. And when you find a census, look for the ones when the family was young, when the family was new, because if you... That's how you keep track of the women. A woman may be born in a family and the name may never change. A woman may be born in a family and her name does change. But something, I don't know about all families, but something that I found is very curious in my family. And I think other families will find similar traits in their own is that these folks recycle names. (laughs) They recycle names and so it is, it's so interesting to be really, really careful to figure out which, which Mary or which Susan that sent that record is referring to. Which Martha, which Harriet, <laughs> you know, which James and John that that's, you know, those, those common names of that, of that period. Yeah. That, that is the, the census reports try to find when the family was young so that you know the young women who are in that and in that family. The other thing that I have found to be very rich are death certificates. Southern death certificates, even as north as Kentucky will list a couple of generations on the death certificates. So the parents of the deceased, the caretaker, which is often a family member, a caretaker who was the responsible person, who the doctor was, who the responsible person was. And as we know, has been our history. In many cases, who was taking care of the elderly in the family? It was the spinster daughter. Yes, (laughs) ma'am. Yes, ma'am. That is a really interesting thing to investigate. Yes, Yes. So that those types of interesting clues along the way will help you find the women that influenced your family. And then you be that woman and recognize the fact that as women, we get to have chapters. This is a chapter that I'm in as I am in entering my uh, silver years. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite unlike the chapters. That, but, we, uh, that we need to have chapters because so much of history has always been white male focused. It's been told from that perspective, but there are so mm-hmm. many other perspectives. It is just that. It's the issue of perspectives. Even reading some of these journals, you begin to understand when you ask the question about, and, and many people do, I'm not interested in my family history. It doesn't affect my life today. It doesn't affect who I am. And I say, okay, but I also say, go back a generation or two. And it is sometimes startling to see the familiar traits, the way and why we do the things we do. This very little thing, my family likes lemonade. When the Higginses Julia Higgins and her husband, Charles, when they would have their Sunday gatherings, I learned that lemonade was on the menu. We infuse our lemonades. We do all kinds of things. Every family member within this line has a little thing that we do with our lemonades. So recently, 
And during this family research, Charles Higgins was the executor of Paul Dunbar's estate. So there has been, there have been books and articles written about he and Paul Dunbar's relationship. And in reading one of those books, I came across just a couple of lines where they mention Mother Higgins. So this is my great grandfather's mother would always bring the lemonade to the Saturday fish fry. When you can see those origin stories of things that you sort of started to take for granted, like right. the, the, the lemonade, you just think, oh, it's a tasty beverage. We all enjoy it. But it it goes back. It goes back yeah. and it's... It goes back. And so I was pleased as punch to, <laughs> <laughs> to find out the origins of that family tradition. And it makes it, it, makes it even more enjoyable to yeah. uh, celebrate it. Yeah, like you can just like raise a glass to your great great grandmother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so and, and motivations. That's uh, another reason that I like exploring family history is to see why did I do that? Why do I like that? It's there. It's there in, in your in in your in your family history. Yeah. My uh, my grandmother uh, Charlotte Tiggins Johnson was a poet and uh, writer. I am surrounded right now by her work. And uh, I have to know that that inspires my writing in uh, more ways than one. As I told you, my last job was uh, a journalist. Right. And, that that uh, had to have come from somewhere, that, that instilling that love of words. You. Absolutely. I can give it to you in 20 seconds. Okay. So this writing is something altogether different than anything that I've ever done. And I happen to believe and I, I know that it is inspired by the work that, that she has done and the work that her mother did uh, as well. So that's, that's my take on why history is important, because it helps you learn who you are. And I have to say this, because when you talk about spinsters, I am often asked about why I speak the way I do. My mother was an elocutionist. My great-grandmother and her husband were elocutionists. But they were all taught and trained by Miss Hallie Q. Brown. Now, I will always make you do your homework. So please Google Miss Hallie Q. Brown, who was a suffragist and an elocutionist who gave elocution lessons to speech lessons to over three generations of my family. She to my knowledge, was never married, never had any children. Miss Brown's picture hung in our family home. Miss Brown was such an integral part of our family that she was mentioned in my mother's obituary. There is a building at Central State University, uh, the historically Black college in uh, Dayton, in um, Xenia, Ohio, named after Miss Brown. So she continues to live. This she is- continues this is such a yes. This is such a beautiful story, and just the ways that these women we might discount, other people might discount their contributions to to family, or might have said like, "You don't have any family, you don't have anyone." But they had so many people, and they gave so much of themselves. Your legacy is what you make it. Your legacy is what you make it, and each life touches another in some way or another. And it's up to you to decide how you want to touch lives, what the legacy is that you want to, to leave. And um, 
I think I've gotten to the point where I am because I have watched these women, my mother and my cousin, Betty Jane Duggar, were the keepers of the family treasures. I have watched these women keep and try to share these stories and artifacts with a city, state, and nation that did not care to hear it from a Black woman's perspective. I feel a sense of obligation to them. And might I mention as well, this Betty Jane Ducker, who was the Betty Jane Ducker Ferguson, briefly married, who was the keeper of our family treasures. She had no children. She had no children. But she still passed down this legacy. Here I am. And here you are. Yeah. Surrounded, surrounded by things that cousin Betty Jean kept and secured and knew and believed in what I believe is this day, which is telling this story, telling it in a way that weaves it and confirms it with American history. I think that they were waiting for this time and place in history to happen. And I often say and acknowledge that it could not happen without the World Wide Web, because much of the work I do would have required me to go to courthouses in all over the, the, the North and South to gather this information. I am frequently at the Montgomery County courthouses as often as I possibly can to get into the archives there. However, being able to do this on the internet, I think is something that has, I just don't know how we would have been able to do it without it. The, exactly. the, the, work, the, the work would have been as it, well, to tell you, the work would have been exactly what it was, which is generational. So each generation did as much as they could and the lifetime that they had, and they passed it to the next. And so now here I am in this generation with, which is Wildest Dreams technology, I had to seize the opportunity. You did. This is something so special. I don't think many people in their family have this level of of documentation, of commitment to preserving family history. And thank you so much for sharing it with the world. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And I invite you to listen to our podcast. I invite you to go to our website, charitieschildren.org. And that will lead you to the podcast and tell you about our efforts to resurrect the old castle on the hill in Dayton, Ohio. We want a place of permanence that we can uh, share and show our archival history and promote women's perspectives. So amazing. I will link everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. And I am so glad that I know your story. And I can't wait to listen to season two of the podcast. (laughs) It's coming. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again, Patricia. You can learn more about Charities Children Project at www.charitieschildren.org and listen to the first season of her podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. You can also follow the links in the show notes. If you want to support The Spinster Life, listen up. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or sign up for the Substack newsletter, spinsterlife.substack.com or follow us on Instagram at livingthespinsterlife. I'm also on YouTube. The channel handle is The Spinster Life. Thanks for listening. 